This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, Canada and its NATO allies are standing pat on sending troops into Ukraine. That, despite multiple requests from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky for increased military support against Russia. We've heard from NATO Secretary General saying that following that NATO summit, that the organization is not interested at this point in sending troops into Ukraine Yet He also said that they will continue to support through weapons, through funding and intelligence, but they are stopping short of sending peacekeepers as well. We are now in the second month of the invasion of Ukraine. So what are we seeing on the ground? We are joined now by Global's Reggie Cicchini in Washington. Reggie, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Let's talk about what's happening first on the ground. What do we know as far as the clashes and what's happening in Kyiv? So these clashes throughout Kyiv have been ongoing. So too has this indiscriminate shelling for the last several days. We've heard uh, the air raid sirens going off uh, fairly frequently over the course of any given point in the day. But intelligence sources out of the United Kingdom say that Ukraine has now been able uh, to recapture territory on the eastern side of the capital while this war wages on through the northwestern suburbs uh, and towns. But overall, we're hearing that Ukrainians have been able to push back Russian troops by more than 55 kilometers uh, from the center of the city. So there are some gains there. There were also some gains made in a southern port city where Ukraine was able to destroy a Russian warship at a port that Moscow sees as vital for resupply missions. The gains are being made, but they are also uh, facing setbacks, including in the port town of Mariupol. More than 90% of that town has been completely destroyed, and we're hearing that Russian troops are once again blocking access to humanitarian quarters to get aid in and people out. Looking at some of the footage of Mariupol is just devastating to see that. And you mentioned uh, the humanitarian quarters uh, as well. Uh, Do you think, uh, and the importance of that also, uh, that the the reason that the fighting is happening there, it being actually access to to the Black Sea. What do you think we're going to see as far as the, the, the next couple of days even with that fight for Mariupol? Well, I mean, look, there's very little uh, left to that town. It is completely encircled by uh, Russian troops, and there is this ongoing effort to try uh, and force some kind of capture of uh, of that city. Uh, but again, this is simply leading to more pressure from the West, uh, solely because this is now an attack on civilian infrastructure that we're seeing uh, from Russian troops in and around Mariupol. Uh, there's also growing concern over what we saw uh, from that shelling of an art house in Mariupol. The Ukrainian government now saying that upwards of 400 people may have died as a result of just that one bombing, even though there were signs outside written in Russian that said children uh, painted on the outside of that building. So this is a growing concern, not only in Ukraine, but really for the entire world. And what are we seeing as far as the push or the call for more sanctions against Russia, specifically Russia's energy sector? So just today, the United States and the European Union announced uh, that they would that the United States would be uh, ramping up its exports of liquefied natural gas as a way to help the European Union cut its reliance on Russian energy, expected to be by two thirds uh, later this year. Canada also expected to ramp up its production uh, of LNG by several hundred thousand barrels. Uh, this is all a way to try and get Europe away from the energy sector, and for what President Biden says, is a way to stop the funding of Russia's war chest. There are concerns. Across 
across parts of Europe, that this could eat into their finances, that this could thrust Europe into a recession uh, if prices climb too high and they ultimately end reliance too quickly. But at the end of the day, uh, they say that sanctions ultimately are going to be what works to maintain this pressure uh, on the Kremlin to pull out of Ukraine. And you mentioned President Biden. Where are we seeing the president today or what's on his agenda? So after that meeting in Brussels today, he boarded a plane. He's now en route to Poland, where he's expected to meet with some Ukrainian refugees uh, in the city uh, of Sheshov, which plays a key role in uh, the transport of Western military hardware in through Ukraine. Uh, he's also expected to meet with some uh, U.S. troops that are stationed in the region. This all comes as the uh, NATO countries talk about amping up uh, a more permanent structure of troops, not only through Poland, but across the eastern flank uh, of Europe on NATO's borders. President Biden also expected to meet with the Polish president tomorrow again uh, to thank him for uh, their humanitarian efforts and again to kind of bolster what the United States is going to do to be able to shoulder some of the burden that's been created by the humanitarian crisis from Ukraine. We've seen so many leaders going to Poland, going to countries around and very near Ukraine. What is the significance or, or what do you think the message that is being sent by having President Biden there right now? I mean, look, this is simply a a message to Russia that despite its attempts to try and drive a wedge between the West uh, and the United States or between Europe and the United States, that it's not going to happen and that there is strength in numbers. They have not backed down since Russia started to move its troops towards the border uh, of Ukraine. Uh, And having leaders in uh, Poland, having some European leaders actually go into Kyiv itself is just another sign uh, of strength that if Vladimir Putin thought that the West was going to back down in the eyes or in the wake of its threats and actions, uh, that that's not going to happen and that there is going to be a kind of uh, Uh, wall that surrounds uh, the NATO borders uh, and ultimately is there to help Ukraine. So this is more pressure on the Kremlin to say, we're here, we're not going anywhere. Do you think there will be more pressure then as well from Ukraine's president to get more help and the kind of that balancing act with sending military uh, support, not sending peacekeeping though, and, and kind of walking that fine line? Yeah, look, President Zelensky has been asking for support uh, at a fairly rapid clip here, uh, and the West continues to provide it. They're not going to put themselves in any kind of danger of crossing a red line with Russia by putting troops on the ground or by putting any kind of no-fly zone in place. But billions upon billions of dollars in military aid have already been approved and is on the way in through Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is asking for thousands of of anti-tank weaponry uh, and missiles. They are getting those. Uh, And again, this is simply a a way to bolster the security of Ukraine, despite the fact that Russia sees this again as an escalation or a red line. The West has said that they are going to do what they can to defend the Ukrainian people and government. All right. Reggie Cicchini, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. And of course, we will keep you up to date with what is happening in Ukraine. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know millions of Ukrainians have fled that country as the Russian invasion continues. Many have gone to neighboring countries, but also we are preparing to welcome people here in BC. There is a large Ukrainian population here and a UBC Souter School of Business professor who is building ways to help support Ukrainian families, well, has come up with a unique way of doing that. So we are joined now by Sandra Robinson, a professor of organizational Behavior and Human Resources at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really, really delighted to get a chance to talk to you for a few minutes about our initiative. Well, it just sounds like such a great initiative. So tell us how it started. 
Well, you know, it, it wasn't planned, and it started actually with um, I had a, a Ukrainian American contact in California who was trying to um, help her family. It's really two family units that are related, trying to come over to the U.S. They can't right now, um, and instead, she so she thought, "What's well, closest? Okay, Vancouver," <laughs> and, and wanted to see if I could look into accommodation. Um, we had some availability, but not enough for the what would be five people. And so I looked around for um, someone might be able to to house uh, the other part of the family. And in seeking that out, I was inundated with people trying to help me. <laughs> it was so amazing. And and it's like now and then it grew and it kept going and and people are offering you know homes. And and then my Ukrainian contact said she had other people she knew. Um, and from there, it's just it is taken off and we now have in our neighborhood uh, a group of families who are eager to provide either accommodation food transportation you name it um and as well we have a set of ukrainian families who will be coming over as well um we still actually are have a little bit more room (laughs) given how many people are involved but the thing is our group i think it's of course it's early stages and We'll only know how successful it is <laughs> as we go through it. Uh, but so far, I think it's 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 a model that's going to work. Um, no one family can support an entire family. Um, so we're trying to do this as a group effort. And everybody wants to help, but not everybody has a lot to offer. Some might have some space, so they don't have time. Or someone, someone can cook food, <laughs> you know, but they might not be able to offer anything else. So the idea of being able to pool resources and then lean on each other, who are the helpers, if you will, um, and having a chance for the Ukrainian families that are with our group to get to know one another, um, to me, that, that's a recipe that's going to work. Um, now, the one challenge I face is there's huge demand on each side, both um, Vancouver people through our you know, various networks. Everyone's got a friend who wants to join us. Um, and on the other side, there's, of course, as you can imagine, there's so many Ukrainians that are fleeing and would love to be able to come to Canada. Um, and I feel bad because I can't. I, we need to keep our group a certain size just to be manageable and to be functional. Um, so I thought, what could I do? Well, maybe I could start to share what we're doing and encourage other people who would love to be able to help to do something similar. I think we could have lots of different initiatives um, that collectively, I think, could could really make a difference. Oh, um, so yeah. for sure. I mean, it sounds like it just took off when you even just started talking about it and people were getting word uh, of it. Was it a Facebook group or how did people get together and, and share that information? Yeah, I mean, it's for in, in my case, and there's probably different ways to do it, it could take different forms. I happen to post on my different networks, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, and then just ask people I knew. Um, and, you know, that led to lots of interest. And uh, most of it's been kind of word of mouth, you know, just, you know, my friend has another friend, someone in her book club, someone who is in a walking group, someone who does yoga with someone has something, you know, the network, just talking to people, um, uh, really created lots of <laughs> lots of energy and people people wanting to join us as a group as a whole. Now we've created a Facebook page, which is a closed group just for us to get to know each other and get to know our, the Ukrainian families who will be our visitors. Um, but that's that's sort of right now how we're communicating. It's not necessarily the best way for us to get together. We're probably going to start doing group zooms. Uh, maybe we'll have a WhatsApp group. We haven't quite sorted it, sorted it out yet, but um, that's the idea. But um, be assured that if uh, if you start to organize something with your friends, you'll have. I'm absolutely convinced you'll have no shortage of of neighbors that want to join you in the effort. And it's 
It, I think it feels great to be able to do something. And I think it also feels um, less overwhelming if you're able to share it with a group of people. It's also a great way to get to know people in, you know, in your neighborhood because <laughs> you're doing something together like that. So. Oh, for, for sure. How did you get matched up then with the Ukrainian families? Yeah, that's an excellent question and one of the key ones. So I have the advantage of my Ukrainian-American contact to new people. So again, there's a bit of a network there. Um, And then also we have turned to really what has become a really popular website, which is called uh, Ukraine Takes Shelter. There people can post homes available and likewise um, fleeing Ukrainians can seek out accommodations. Um, And with... With the help of my contact, too, she's been doing vetting and helping with that and that kind of coordination. It really does make a difference. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not without risk because we don't always know who is who, but there's, there's lots of resources available um, to make it safe and secure for both parties, I think. And, you know, it's a process of building trust. Um, but, you know, whether it's um, sharing documentation, doing Zooms together, following the advice, I know that the, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has, has put out some information on, on how to match up with people, both sides, in, in a safe way. Um, you know, and it's, it's certainly a lot safer than, you know, renting a place on Airbnb. <laughs> you know, so, you know, again, it's not perfect. We don't have, you know, um, incredible vetting on both sides. So there's always going to be, there's probably going to be some downsides in in that, but I think we still have to act. We have to do what we can to um, to help people. Um, and this is one we we see this as one of the quickest ways to do so. The visa process opened on March 17th. We know people are now doing um, the first step, which is biometrics, where they're you know checking for their criminal background. They're doing a security check. After that, there's two more steps where they you know they give in their passport and then they receive it back with the with the visa. And we're thinking people will, for us at least, will start arriving around April 8th, give or take. Um, and then, you know, go from there. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's not a lot of time. There isn't a huge amount of time to, you know, have a highly structured organizational system to bring people in and, and match them up. And we think this more grassroots effort is, is the one that's going to work the most efficient and I think provide lots of benefits for both sides. Oh, definitely. And April 8th, uh, that, it's not very far away. So uh, will everybody be ready for when people start arriving? <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. I mean, the main thing is housing. So we've got that figured out for those who would be the earliest arrivers. You know, some of us are now going to the high school this week to, you know, talk about registering who, who you know, we have some teenagers who are coming in. Um, you know, we're, we're talking as a group like, okay, well, they need food. What can we do? And to, to be honest, it is definitely not something you can massively plan in advance all the parts because this is new to all of us. Each family is going to have unique needs. And so we have to you have to be comfortable and go with the flow. <laughs> and we're, we're fortunate enough that we, we have lots of motivated and talented people in our group. And, and we're, we're unusually privileged to have resources. Um, and those two, those two pieces make it much easier. Um, so we're confident that as needs arise, we'll be able to help them. Well, it's a great initiative. And like you said, keeping it as a small kind of grassroots model that works. We'll have to leave it there. But uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining us and sharing what, uh, how this all came together. Great. Thanks so much for letting me share it. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, as we've been talking about this morning, Premier John Horrigan set to make an announcement at 9.30 today about a gas rebate. And he will be joined by Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, who also happens to be the minister in charge of ICBC. You're going to hear that announcement live here on CKNW on the Mike Smith Show. We want to talk more, though, about the price of gas and what is fueling the high prices. Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and joins us now. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, good to be here this morning, Jill. Thank you. Uh, we're still seeing gas prices. I think the last I saw was about a buck ninety-six a liter. What's happening at the pumps with the prices right now? Yeah, they're staying in the dollar ninety range. Uh, the good news is, uh, Jill, if you can hold off till tomorrow, they drop about three cents a liter. Uh, and of course, uh, it looks like Sunday may also see a, a similar drop, maybe two cents a liter. But uh, uh, the short term advice is maybe hold off until Sunday to fill up if you can. Uh, but the longer term is, uh, again, uh, massive uncertainty uh, with respects to uh, the supply of, uh, of oil, uh, which is probably going to get more complicated as we get uh, closer to the uh, summer driving season throughout North America. Temperatures warm up, so does uh, you know, our willingness to get on the roads. And for that reason, we often see prices move up, uh, especially from about this time right up until September. So uh, anything can happen this time. I think, of course, uh, noting Vancouver uh, often uh, is subject to whatever happens in Washington State, uh, the uh, shutdown annually of the uh, Olympic pipeline owned by BP, uh, that tends to uh, cause prices to to move up as well. And so for those reasons, it's kind of uh, one of those things where, you know, you really want to make sure that uh, you're uh, you're well prepared for uh, the large increases that uh, are likely to happen in the foreseeable future. How are you able to be so accurate and predictive that it's going to go down three cents and then another two cents? Uh, look, the wholesale prices are determined usually a day and a half before on the markets. So the purposes of Vancouver, it's the Pacific Northwest uh, market uh, out of Washington and Oregon states. And uh, you mix that in with the value of the Canadian dollar. You also have to look at the other factor uh, that uh, plays into this uh, the amount of tax, 5% GST added to the ever-increasing price or, in this, in some cases, decreasing prices. I've been doing this, Jill, for, uh, I'm going to say since 1996, so uh, well over you know 25 years now. And uh, I think the idea behind it was simply to give people a bit of a heads up so that they have a bit of a hedge and uh, taking away the need for regulating prices because in the maritime provinces, uh, they've had to use their uh, what they call interrupter clause. Uh, last week, Newfoundland used it six times in the span of uh, 10 days. Uh, it's almost as if maybe they should uh, you know, <laughs> give up on the idea of trying to guess what markets are doing and just let the markets make those decisions for them. Uh, interesting when you say, yeah, you certainly have been doing this uh, for uh, a long time, since uh, the mid-90s. Uh, <laughs> we're expecting this announcement today. I mean, it looks like we're going to be getting uh, in BC that the government's going to cut a check to ICBC policyholders rather than, okay. say, tinker with the taxes or the price yeah. at the pump. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that might help. It's not going to be a direct, uh, you know, uh, correlation to prices going up or down. But, you know, for people uh, coming from outside of British Columbia into B.C. for the first time, they're going to be surprised that they don't get a rebate on the carbon tax, as we see in several provinces. It's not often what you actually wind up paying for, but at least it's something. Uh, in my province of Ontario, uh, they issued, uh, uh, you know, uh, a rebates on your license. So if you've, uh, because they've abandoned the idea of, uh, you know, going every year and having to renew your license plate. So many people are receiving checks from anywhere from 100 bucks to 400 bucks, depending on how many vehicles you have. Uh, Quebec, uh, yes, uh, I think on Tuesday had uh, proposed 
uh, to fight inflation overall, obviously driven by energy. Yeah, make no mistake, what's driving this is a whole pile of factors, but energy is really at the core of why we're seeing you know such a steady move in inflation beyond the price of homes and used cars. Um, so Quebec uh, gave, uh, I think, out to about 94% of people uh, who work in that province will receive uh, a rebate check of $500. So I think it's likely that what BC is going to do today will mirror uh, a little bit of what's happening in other provinces, including, of course, what's happening in Alberta on April uh, the 1st, the day the carbon tax increases, uh, which will be a decline in the uh, $0.13 cent, uh, sales tax on, on fuel. All right. And back to the prices at the pump. I did get an email from somebody earlier this morning talking about the savings that they got by going across the border and getting gas in the United States, yeah. saying, I think they said it was something like 60 cents a liter. What are we going to see then as far as prices in the U.S.? Because they, they would, I would imagine they'll go up as well, obviously not as much as what we're paying here, but but people will be looking as soon as well as that testing requirement for coming back into Canada is gone. I would would imagine it's going to be very attractive for people to do that. That's right, and buy other things as well, and that's unfortunate. But you know, I mean, or uh, Washington State, uh, Bellingham, Blaine, Point Roberts uh, do not have to pay a carbon tax. They don't pay a uh, clean fuel standard or a BC low carbon fuel standard of seventeen cents. They don't pay a ten cent carbon tax, and they don't pay a TransLink tax of eighteen point five cents a liter. So, not surprising that the price of fuel, when you think about it. You strip away those taxes uh, and take into account the difference in the value of the Canadian dollar, which continues to lag behind with a 25% uh, discount for Canadians uh, trying to purchase uh, in the United States. When you put all those things together, you figure that uh, the real differentiation between ourselves and, uh, say, Washington State is, in fact, uh, government taxes. And that's uh, a decision public and politicians have made. Uh, I've been in that business for 18 years. I'll let someone else do it now. <laughs> um, and one one other question. When we talk, you mentioned this off the top, the uncertainty and what's happening. Obviously, we're looking at what's happening in Ukraine. A lot of people, or a lot of politicians saying, uh, really kind of blaming that for the prices. But clearly, there's a lot more going on there as well. Yeah, you hit $1.80 before the invasion. Um, what's really happening here is the, uh, and for Canada, the tragedy is not being able to get its oil to markets and the world having to turn to, you know, shady characters like Russia, like Iran, like Venezuela, which, of course, the Biden administration ironically is doing, even though they're importing 800,000 barrels of Russian oil every day. The alternatives aren't any better when you think about it uh, by any measure, whether it's environmental, whether it's human rights, labor, whatever the case may be. What I think we, we have to consider here is uh, Canada has the potential. I did a quick note this morning uh, for a friend of mine uh, in, uh, in Victoria, and I said, you know, if Canada uh, could wave a magic wand and we didn't shut down, didn't have the Keystone shut down and the, K, the Trans Mountain Pipeline had uh, been flowing, uh, all 830,000 barrels, uh, Keystone XL, Energy East and Northern Gateway, we would be able to displace most of what, uh, what uh, Russia exports to other, uh, to other regions. And uh, it's not lost on folks like myself who look at this from time to time to say, not only would Canadians be saving 25 cents a litre, we'd have a stronger Canadian dollar, we'd also uh, be exporting and uh, perhaps provide, uh, at the end of the day, a more secure world. So we just need to build a time machine and go back and uh, make we different do. choices. <laughs> but no, I, I won't be the politician doing it. And that, that's that's over. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because I've seen some politicians say, we'll do what we can and we're going to up production. But like you pointed out, if you don't have the means to get it anywhere, what's the point, really? 
Now, I mean, that's, you know, I, I see some people going gaga over the idea that you can, you know, we got 300,000 barrels, big whoop you do I mean, the fact is we've suppressed our ability to send crude to the rest of the world. And uh, in that regard, for all the reasons that are cited, I think some people, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. It would have been better for us to at least be a little bit more measured. But I think now there's a bit of a different narrative. Yeah, we have our responsibilities and our obligations. God knows Canada is meeting those when it comes to climate environment. But uh, I think we also have to be a little bit more realistic about uh, the real threats in this world today. And that is uh, an issue of global security. So I'm pulling off my old energy hat, putting back on my foreign affairs cap, where I was for many years under the Martin government. And I, I can't believe... Uh, how things have changed in such a short period of time. So I think the discussion has to be about balance and reality rather than, you know, uh, fantasizing about something that we want to achieve but is not achievable yet, certainly not without creating uh, significant harm uh, to uh, to the world and to the world's order. All right. Well, Dan, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks so much for your time and uh, your expertise on this. We'll talk to you again soon. Great talking to you again, Jill. Look forward to it again. That is Dan McTagg, the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. There you have it. Gas expected to drop three cents and then another two cents on Sunday if you can hold off filling up. And again, that announcement on relief at the pumps or in some form coming at 9.30 this morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you enjoy heading to Nat Bailey Stadium and taking in a Vancouver Canadiens game, you've probably been missing it throughout this pandemic. Well, good news. The Canadians will be back at the stadium on April 19th for their home opener. And it means a lot more than just the return after a more than 900-day hiatus. It's also the first time since 1999 that the Canadians will be taking to the fields at the Nat in April. Well, joining us to talk about that and some other changes coming to how we watch baseball is watcher Walter Kosman, VP of Sales and Marketing with the Vancouver Canadians Professional Baseball Club. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. It's pretty exciting to see the Canadians getting ready to come back. Oh, our fans are just ecstatic. We're like kids in a candy store right now with it being less than a month away before our home opener. Uh, and now with this being the first time since 99 that it's happened in April, what led to that? Yeah, we've uh, with our affiliation with the Toronto Blue Jays, we've actually moved up two divisions. So we've gone from low A baseball to high A. So not only are we expanding from 38 home games to 66 home games, we're also moving up a couple divisions so our fans will even see a better quality baseball being played at, at Nat Bailey this summer. Uh, which a lot of people I'm sure will be looking forward to. Uh, what was it like for the players being on hiatus? Well, we did play last year, but we had to play down in Hillsborough, Oregon, and a lot of our players were just dying to get back to Vancouver. They're like, when are we getting back? Can we get back? We thought we might be able to get back in August, but the border just didn't allow that. Um, but the players just love the city and they're excited to get back here and you know, we know we're, we're fortunate to live in the most beautiful city in North America, and the players feel that as well. So they're, they're all quite excited to get back here uh, next month. There is something quite special uh, about being at that stadium, and especially if it's uh, whether it's the afternoon or in the evening with the sun going down. It can be a pretty great experience for everybody. Absolutely. And yeah, we're excited that we'll have, you know, more. We've got 11 nooners. We've got 11 Saturdays. We've got uh, 11, you know, family fun Sundays. So basically we're going to have... 11 home stands, six days a week, and uh, from Tuesday to Sunday, and our fans are pretty excited about that. Uh, 
And talk a bit, if you can, about the the new position of head coach. Well, not a new position, but Brent Lavallee joining as head coach. Yeah, well, in baseball we call them managers, so we have to we have to be correct on that point. In in hockey they call them coaches, but in baseball they're our managers. So uh, Brent Lavallier, local kid out of North Delta, uh, is excited. He was supposed to be our coach in 2020, and that obviously season got canceled because of COVID. Uh, but he's very excited uh, uh, to join us in April, and uh, it's it's a awesome local story. He went uh, down south to play baseball, ended up coaching there joining the Blue Jays organization and has moved up the ranks and is now going to be our manager for the 2022 season. So very exciting to have a local guy come do that. And do things change? You mentioned as well that this is going to be the second season as high A, the high A affiliate. Does it change much? I mean, the title obviously changes and and such, but does it change the job of the manager or, or anything else? Uh, the biggest change is that for our fans is we'll probably see the top prospects that the Blue Jays have coming out of uh, in past, we would get maybe a third or half of those players that are either uh, drafted or coming out of university and such, and now we'll see the majority of those. So, you know, in years past, we were fortunate to have guys like Alec Manoa, who now plays for the Blue Jays, come through here, uh, but we missed guys like Vladdy Guerrero because they, you know, just bypassed low-A baseball. In the future, we wouldn't miss a guy like that. He would come here. So uh, it's exciting for our fans to, to see those players when they're drafted by the Blue Jays and as we know, there's a lot of Blue Jay fans in the lower mainland, so they want to come out and see those players play. So, yeah, it changes in that regard. From a manager's standpoint, not a lot. They still have their job to do to, to improve these players uh, in the tenure that they're here with the Canadians and move them up. That's the whole goal is to see them move up to AA, AAA, and then eventually with the Blue Jays. All right, uh, good goals. Uh, you mentioned uh, for the fans. So fans will notice uh, some new policies, though. I want to talk about this new bag policy because uh, this is a bit different. So bags have to be clear and actually quite small. What led to that policy change? Yeah, that's a Major League Baseball policy change that we have to implement. It's not a Vancouver Canadians policy uh, per se. It, it was uh, led right across uh, North America by all Major League Parks and all Minor League Parks in baseball. Uh, so it's kind of aligning. You know, I think our fans are kind of used to that. If they go down to a Seahawks game or go down to a Mariners game in Seattle, they have those policies as well. So it'll take a little while to get used to, but it's pretty minor. We've tried to help with that. Like even talking about it today will help our fans uh, be aware of that. They are allowed to bring, like, a, a clutch purse, um, but just not, not a large purse. But uh, we're also, uh, all our season ticket holders, we've sent them an actual clear bag to bring to games, mm-hmm. and we'll have those bags available at the, t- at the ticket windows when they come in through the gates. Okay, because it might be a bit of a learning curve, and I, I could see somebody showing up with, say, a purse or a small backpack. What happens if somebody shows up with that? Yeah, we'll, we'll transfer it to a small, clear bag, and, and then they'll know for next time. But, you know, we think we're trying to educate people as much as possible before they come. We've got lots of notices going out to all our tickets, uh, buyers that buy tickets and sending them to notice about it. So we'll give them lots of fair warning um and and we'll adjust if we need to but we think it'll be a matter of a first homestand and then people will be used to that policy and and move on and focus more about the good times that they have at Nat Bailey when they're out here and focused on uh you know as I always say we're not just in the baseball business we're in the entertainment one of our you know popular items of the sushi races people get pretty excited about every night so I think people will get by the bag policy quickly and move on to the fun things like sushi races and, and other activities for sure and just so i'm clear though so if your bag is clear because I've, I've seen this a diagram that was sent out so if you have say a clear purse or a clear kind of bag does it matter what size that is as long as it's clear 
Yeah, it has to be under 12 inches by 6 inches by 12, so it can't be like a, a massive bag. But as long as it's mid-size, that's okay. And, you know, and I think for some people, it's actually a better policy than somebody going through their purse to see what they might be bringing into a ballpark. So there's a, you know, a bit of a privacy thing there as well that you're not invading somebody's privacy by looking through their purse to what they're bringing into a ball, uh, into the ballpark. Right. Is it a security thing or what was the reasoning yeah, behind I that change? Major League Baseball just did it as a security thing across North America. Like I said, it wasn't targeted to Nat Bailey Stadium at all. We've never had any issues in Nat Bailey. We have a fun and friendly crowd, but as you can imagine, in some U.S. cities and other areas, that's not the case. So, it, you know, it's just an easier, um, you know, policy that they can put in place for across the entire league. And I understand as well, cashless payments, cash, cashless are going to be strongly encouraged and not every concession or every uh, kiosk is going to take cash. Yeah, that's correct. We're trying to move to a cashless uh environment but we will still take cash in a few kiosks just if that's all that our fans have and that's just more of uh most people now are so used to playing with debit and credit uh and it just speeds up the process instead of doing cash so we just want to try to reduce our wait times uh, on the concession stands so you can get that three foot hot dog or that uh, foot long hot dog a little quicker enjoy get back to the game and enjoy the game so that just helps speed up the concession stands a little quicker all right. Well, I know a lot of people, fans of the game, are going to be very excited to welcome the Canadians back. Walter, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me, and we look forward to seeing everybody out at the Nat. Sounds good. That is Walter Cosman, VP of Sales and Marketing with the Vancouver Canadians Professional Baseball Club. And again, the Canadians will be opening the gates of Nat Bailey Stadium, the home opener happening on Tuesday, April 19th. And uh, then many games after that, they're going to be playing 66 times this year over the course of 11 six-game series against their five Northwest League opponents. Always a great time at the Nat.